Hong Kong Rita podcast. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Edwin and actually Rita for inviting me to share some of my um, ex experience and thoughts around open innovations. Um, so how do we feel today? Are we feeling hot? <laughs> um, well, you should be. Um, you may have seen this on the media recently, and of course it caught my eye. So I actually went around, I actually took this picture, and this is actually air temperature in the tropics. So this is where we are. And it, it's sort of a graph of the temperature, air temperature, for the last 40 years. Every little gray line, it's, it's a year. And the one in the middle is the mean, and the two top and bottom are two standard deviation from the mean. And as you can see, 2022, we are sort of still within two standard deviation. And, and I grabbed this fresh and first of September, rushing for the, this talk. Um, and you can see that just for the past month, we are way beyond the two standard deviation that we've been living um, for the last 40 years. So when people say we're really living in unprecedented times, not only you feel it, the data also shows it as well. Um, and this is where we are. Um, we re really need to look for a lot of innovation to, for this climate change challenge that we have. Um, so open innovations, what is it? So of course I went to search on the web and asked ChatGPT as well. <laughs> and make sure I don't repeat exactly what ChatGPT says. But it's sort of idea about the chart on the bottom left here, um, where you see a funnel and how to get more ideas um, in, in this innovation funnel. And not only within your own organization, but of course, uh, go out, from, uh, partner with other organizations, uh, tap into the expertise out there, and not just within your own organization, and begin to collaborate and sort of get the wisdom of the crowd uh, to innovate. And then some people said it's actually a very good talent development pipeline as well uh, if you uh, involve in open innovations. So these are actually some of the partners that TL works with in, in innovating. And I'm trying to show you maybe five or six innovations that we've been working on for the past years. Um, the first one, recycling, of course. <laughs> and we've been, of course, recycling our pre-consumer waste, um, waste from our cutting tables and making it back into garment. And like everyone else, we are faced with the challenge of collecting it, sorting it out, and working with mixed fiber. So I'm sure a lot of HKReader folks knows about that issue. Um, the other one we've been working on is we're still on, in the search for uh, fluorocarbon-free uh, oil repellency. So that one is still a challenge. We work with university, maybe at early research stage. Um, but unfortunately, I haven't found anything. If I have, I will be jumping up and down and tell you. Um, but that is still something that we're working on. It's being phased out, but uh, there's no real solution at the moment. The other one, shifting gear a little bit, we, of course, work on production floor a lot. And we've been involving in production scheduling, classic problem, but one that's really necessary um, when you think about waste in a general sense, uh, in the Kaizen way. Um, it managed, the algorithms that we work with managed to reduce late penalty by 57% and also reduce idle time and all the other losses by about 36%. So that's sort of innovation on the shop floor about waste reduction. We also have been working on wastewater management. So we do have wastewater treatment in our plants, and we're working for better ways to recycle the water 
from working with graphene, uh, graphene filters to filter things out, as well as actually looking at the bacteria, friendly bacteria like in your yogurt, um, and how to for, for biological treatment of, of, of wastewater. And in our wastewater treatment, we begin to reuse and cascade water a lot. So the wastewater treatment plant is actually the capacity and, and the capability becomes more and more important. Um, we also venture out into the uh, other end of the spectrum, uh, in either end of the supply chain, where products are being shown to consumer. We work in virtual sampling, so we're involved in uh, dressing these ladies in virtual garments. So everything here is actually the garment hasn't been made at all, but it's involved in the product development or even showing to consumer um, what products would look like on, on them. And last but not least, uh, we also work on optimizing supply chain. Um, as some of you know, a lot of the goods in the supply chain at the end of the season are marked down. This is waste in another uh, manner. So we actually worked on this type of topic a lot. Um, it's about deciding exactly uh, when to produce the garment, uh, where the garment should be in your network, and at what level of inventory. And these are sort of some of the achievements that we managed to achieve, stock turn, lead time reduction, as well as reduction of back orders. So I'm trying to pick a, 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 a few of the innovations that I've been working with for many years, and it's very widespread. So how can one company know the bacteria, the friendly bacteria in the wastewater treatment, and all the way to algorithm to optimize your, your, your production? So open innovation, partnering with others uh, around the industry and other industries as well is, is super important. It's, it's, it's not possible for one organization to have all those expertise and solve all these problems uh, at the same time. So let me jump out on other types of open innovation, other forms of open in, in, in innovations. Um, we started with open innovations, but I want to sort of look in other industry and see what type of openness they have. And I'd like to start with a software industry, so a little bit where I come from, so forgive me. Um, so some of you may know that the web, the internet, in particular the web, the, the computer that runs the web, the server that serves you content when you read a web page, all those software are run majority by open source software. There's one called Linux that runs 96% of the top uh, uh, web browser. The ones on the left here, on the bottom left here, are the servers that actually serve you the content, the pages. And the one that you may know is the Chrome browser, is the one that where you read the content. All of these are based on something called open source. And other things that you may know, Android, most of you, some of you have an Android phone here. That one is actually based on open source component as well. And Python, you may have heard a language that's very popular now. These are all open source. But the interesting thing about open source is actually slightly different from free software. The movement sort of started in the late 1980s, so sort of the free software movement. Um, and there's a very interesting guy, Richard Storman, that in introduced the concept of um, copyleft. Instead of copyright, a concept called copyleft. And the famous license is actually called GPL. So apart from the software being free, so for example, free to use, modify and distribute, uh, Richard Storman introduced the concept of if you actually work on it, build derivative work from it, the work that you contribute remains free under the same license. 
Okay, so think about that. So you enjoy the benefit of a free software, but you actually want to contribute it. I want to add a new feature to it. But if that software is under GPL, all the code that you contributed to it, the new feature remains free for the next person. And that is sort of a lot of the concept behind the success of all these things I mentioned earlier. How can a OS, Linux, is free, dominates the web? Because a lot of contributors and all the features they built actually remains free forever. So when we talk, I was thinking of analogies, there's a phrase called standing on the shoulders of giants. This is what it's doing. This license actually allows people to build innovations on top of past innovation without starting from scratch all the time. So this is sort of a concept I like to introduce an openness in our world where innovation is on top of others without licensing or other types of um, issues when it comes to solving climate change, a big issue for, for, the, for the planet. So that's open soft software, it's about application. Um, the other thing is about data. So data is a new oil, people said it many times as well. So let me look into it. Um, so what better area to talk about data than machine learning? It needs a lot of data. And what better example at this moment in time than generative AI? So I'm sure everyone here has experienced ChatGPT. And these models are called um, LLM, large language models. And the one on the bottom here is ChatGPT4. So the, all the ones on the bottom here are actually closed models. You are free to use it, but actually when you want to build on top or commercialize it, you need to pay license fee. So that's fine, it's a business. But my point is, when it comes to innovation in the software world, a lot of people believe in opening many things up to, so that innovation becomes a lot faster, iterate a lot faster. So you begin to see emergence of uh, large language models on the top right here, one by Stanford called Alpaca and stable LM, uh, stability AI. So beginning to have more data around this very hot topic, and even in such a hot topic that people opening up the their, their models for others to use. These are actually um, uh, the, the GPL models, copyleft as well. And of course the question, we're in fashion. So what do we have in fashion? Not much, unfortunately, in terms of open data set. Uh, in terms of commercial data set, we have everything on the bottom left here. So Sustainable Apparel Coalition, of course, have their own uh, data, uh, uh, including the HIG Index. Um, a world leader platform, FFC, and SEDIC. So you can imagine a lot of platforms actually have a lot of the network about the supply chain. If you come to talk about supply chain transparency, all the networks on the bottom left know something about the apparel supply chain, but it's currently closed. <clears throat> the only thing I managed to find is something called Open Supply Hub. The previous name, I think, is called Open Apparel Registry. And this data is free. I actually downloaded it myself, just for this presentation, and drew this diagram on the, on the top left here. This colorful diagram is actually from Open Supply Hub. It has about 120,000 suppliers, and currently only about 100 brands, and actually knows the relationship between all of them. But if you think about this, the usefulness of this network, apart from transparency, in particular, when it comes to science-based target, when it comes to greenhouse gas reduction, where there's a scope, famous scope one and two, but the more famous scope three, it's how things get cascaded. So without, with such a powerful supply chain network, you actually begin to see how effort of one brand could actually cascade up in the supply chain and to really get the whole 
greenhouse gas reduction going and to monitor it. Um, I actually forgot to put, actually, there's a, because of all the due diligence regulations that are coming in, there are a lot of transparency platform, which also belongs to the bottom left here, uh, commercializing it. So very soon there'll be a lot of networks, but I'm sort of proposing that we should have some open networks so it actually helps to tr be transparent about what we're doing and hopefully fuels innovations. Um, so you have a lot of data set. The last form of uh, open innovation I talk about is, is open competition. And once again, I look into the software world um, where there are a lot of data set and people compete on it. And there's a famous platform called Kaggle in the machine learning world. It actually hosted a competition called the Image on the Left. Its claim to fame in, in around 2015 is, um, oh, let me rewind a bit. That competition is about uh, a database of about 1.2 million images and about 1,000 classification. The challenge is for a computer to recognize those images with better accuracy than a human. And that aha moment came around 2015. You can see the curve here dropping down. But around 2015, in February, it was uh, Microsoft and Google actually managed to beat a human, about 5% error rate. But now the current error is about 3%. But the whole thing is, if you remember the, the race for autonomous vehicle, it all sort of started around here because the cameras on top of your car can actually recognize things with enough accuracy that you can drive safely on the road. So this sort of started the whole autonomous vehicle race. But similarly, there are many competition going on. And of course, the latest one is there's another one on, on related to ChatGPT, large language models. But what I did was, was I went to Kegel and looked for apparel and fashion. I type apparel, fashion, clothes, and I can unfortunately only find two. Two data set or two competition. One in 2017 by Zalando Research Lab, where they put up a, a, a bunch of images, once again asking people to try to classify clothes when you look at an image. And another one by H&M, I think I have some H&M folks here as well. Um, only last year, they have a competition of um, asking people to predict uh, future purchases from the past. But, but my point is a lot of opportunities about putting challenges up for the world to have a go at it and really uh, uh, sort of fuel uh, innovations. And so I'll uh, begin to wrap up. So the whole thing about open innovation and various forms of innovation, it's about creating a platform for human ingenuity. And definitely for the gigaton challenge, we do uh, need to um, um, have a lot of innovations. I'd like to sort of end with a little funny mouse that's been waiting here patiently for the last 15 minutes of an example of ingenuity on, a, on an area that nobody expects. So this particular video in YouTube caught my attention. Um, it's about a competition called Micro Mouse, so a very nerdy competition. A little mouse goes around the maze and wants to get to there in the shortest possible time. And it's been running since the 1970s, right? So I thought, wow, everything has been solved. Why are they still running the competition? So, but long and behold, I pressed the button. I watched the video. It was like a 10-minute video. I stayed to the end. And it turns out there are a lot of innovation that you don't expect from such an old problem. So from you start with how to solve the maze, very, very classical problem, to how to find the shortest path. But it turns out the shortest path may not be the best path. The fastest path is what you're after, because even for a short path, you may need to turn a lot of corners, which slows you down. So a longer path 
with less turn, it's actually a better path to choose. So that's what, wow, that was innovative. And then even turning corners, instead of turning corners like in a right angle, they begin to innovate, and actually now it just swings around the corners. And last but not least, that's the one that said I need to show this here. It's something about vacuum cleaner. Micromouse's second Fosbury flop was almost considered a gimmick when the mouse Mokomo 08 first used it in competition. You might be staring at the video to try to see it, but you won't. Instead, it's something you'll hear. That isn't the mouse revving its engines, it's spinning up a propeller. And while flying over the walls is against the rules, there's nothing in the rules against a mouse vacuuming itself to the ground to prevent slipping. Right? I never thought a vacuum cleaner in a competition like that. And apparently, the vacuum cleaner makes it so that the mouse actually turns at 5G, similar to Formula One forces. And so that's where I like to end. Open competition does create uh, uh, innovations through our human ingenuity. Thank you. Find out more about us at www.hkreader.com.